Hey everybody, Steve here, Local Level Podcast. I'm sitting here today with Dr. Dan Hadaka. He is a concierge internist and uh, he's a, a medical doctor on staff at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago. Um, and uh, you can actually visit harper-health.com to learn more about his business uh, and to contact him. So first off, I wanted to have you tell everybody what does concierge medicine uh, really mean. So I'm happy to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to come and speak with your audience. Um, so traditional medical practice is based on volume. So in a traditional insurance um, funded uh, model, uh, you generate revenue based on the volume of people you kind of mill through the clinic. And I use that word mill intentionally um, because it becomes very mechanized and kind of efficient and efficient in the right. pejorative sense of trying to push through as many patients as possible. But at some point it becomes a little bit counterproductive because the more patients you push through clinic, the less and less time you have to spend with each uh, individual patient. So concierge medicine is different in that it's a membership-based model or a retainer practice-based model where patients pay a membership fee out of their own pocket or through their FSA or HSA, but it's outside of the insurance realm. Um, you still need your insurance, um, but the, the physician generates revenue then based off of the me membership fee and is no longer beholden to, to driving volume through their practice in order mm -hmm. to generate revenue. And what it does really is it allows for greater access for patients that are members of the practice and the physician has a lot less patients um, on their panel. So whereas mm -hmm. when I was at Northwestern, I had about 2000 patients on my panel, I can have about a 10th of that in a retainer based practice and really pay exquisite attention to each and every one of them, um, which is what they deserve. Right. Right. Yeah. One of the things, because we always have these conversations before the show to kind of get a feel for uh, what we're going to talk about. And um, you brought up the fact that primary care physicians are kind of short staffed nowadays. Um, it's uh, it's 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 more, I guess, lucrative for doctors to go into a specialty. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that issue and uh, kind of how that how that works for the people that don't know? Yeah. So in general, in medicine, what's reimbursed is not necessarily time spent with the patient counseling or doing doctoring. A lot of it is based on procedures. And I understand that because procedures can have risks. And anytime there's more risk, um, they weight that more heavily in terms of reimbursement. Right. Uh, um, so there's an incentive from a salary standpoint to go into um, a specialty. Um, so you see uh, many physicians going through tertiary care academic medical centers going into the specialties um, because it's nice to be a specialist in one individual area, but it's also mm -hmm. nice to earn a, a bigger paycheck as well. And this is coming at a time when we need more primary care physicians in general as the baby boomer generation gets more gets older and uh, has more health conditions. We need more primary care doctors and there's really a shortage of primary care doctors going into primary care, but also primary care doctors who are trained in a tertiary care academic medical center like Northwestern. Um, in my class, I think there were about 45 physicians and about six went into internal medicine from mm -hmm. Northwestern. So you're getting, um, I don't want to say less qualified people, but the, the people with the, the best pedigree are generally choosing the specialties mm -hmm. um, to go into. And now, is that something that's based on um, what exactly, I mean, I understand that there's more risk involved. So obviously there's a higher reward uh, with, with, with going to a specialty, but what mechanism is in place that's perpetuating that you know i mean you would think that 
uh, people would would realize that it's important to have a, a specialized doctor that you see that you know kind of has your uh, situation fully understood. Uh, so, what part of the system is 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 pushing people towards having to go into a specialty uh, as opposed to wanting to you know be that primary care physician? I think it's it's reimbursement and it's the insurance industry. Um, okay. Even if you look at the physician lobby, two thirds of the physician lobby are specialists, and about a third are primary care physicians. So even what's being lobbied um, is perpetuating the model that we currently have, where procedures are generating more revenue than kind of seeing patients in the clinic. Mm -hmm. And there really isn't a regulatory mechanism looking and seeing, you know, we need more doctors in primary care. Uh, you know, this is what we're going to do to funnel more people through that path. Um, it's kind of a you pick and choose based upon what your interests are when you're early on in residency. Actually, I always found it to be um, a bit bewildering that patients, uh, or doctors would go into training and within three months know that they wanted to be a gastroenterologist or a cardiologist. It was hard enough in the first three months just remembering how to be a doctor, not remembering, trying to learn how to be a doctor, right. um, as opposed, let alone to choose a specialty that early on in their training. Yeah, I mean, that, that is kind of a strange thing. Uh, I mean, with anybody, if you go into schooling, chances are you don't really know what you're there for for uh, most of the time. You know, so it's yeah, I mean, how many people go into college and they know what they want to do, you know, from the outset? Or I, I was right. always I would always kind of look keenly at someone or look oddly at someone when they said, you know, the first day of medical school that they knew they wanted to be a radiation oncologist. And it's kind of like that's a super specialized yeah. um, field. How would you possibly know that that's what you ultimately wanted to go into? And, you know, you obviously talk uh, to, to plenty of doctors. You went to school. So what was the answer? I mean, when you ask when you ask people that, I mean, what do they say? In general, it was my parents are physicians and they told me to, to go into a specialty like radiation oncology um, hmm. or someone had an experience at some point with an aunt or an uncle who had cancer, whose radiation oncologist made a big impact in their life. So you do get those interests hmm. from those personal stories that people have. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes it's a it's a little bit of a head scratcher when somebody knows exactly what they want to do on day one and they haven't even seen kind of the depth and breadth of what's out there in medicine. Right. I was actually kind of the opposite. I no one in my family went into medicine. Um, so I don't really have a physician in the family that was a role model. And I kind of saw physicians as being jacks of all trades and, and kind of taking care of the patient as a whole, which is what you do in internal medicine and in primary care. Um, I definitely understood the implications of going into primary care and not choosing a specialty just in terms of salary and scope of practice. Um, but ultimately, I like taking care of the patient as a whole. And I kind of like doing a little bit of everything. I thought it would be boring to just deal with the heart, you know, for the rest of my career right. or to deal with the GI system. I, I think it's kind of cool that as an internist, I can evaluate someone and work them up as much as I feel comfortable with and then, you know, ultimately pass them off to a specialty if they need a test or if I really need another opinion. Um, but I'm really able to uh, treat the patient as a whole and kind of um, use my clinical acumen to try and get to the bottom of what's going on before I pass them off to a specialist. Because once you start mm -hmm. seeing a specialist, um, you're more likely to get tests and that's not a knock on the specialist. Right. But if you're going to see a cardiologist and you have chest pain odds are you're going to get a stress test. And I don't fault them for that at all. But as an internist, if someone's having chest pain, there's a little bit more of a margin uh, for error for me in terms of not ordering a stress test. So I, I feel like I can kind of serve my patients best in terms of minimizing the amount of uh, medicalization that occurs 
when they start to see um, multiple different specialists. And patients yeah. will do that. They will kind of fragment their care without really knowing that they're doing it. You know, mm -hmm. if I have a stomach pain, I go to my gastroenterologist. If I have chest pain, I go to my cardiologist. If my shoulder's bothering me, I see my rheumatologist. But really all that does to, to your care is it decentralizes it and kind of scatters it out, you know, in the ether, right. making it kind of difficult for somebody to take um, kind of a good overall look at, at what's going on. Um, tell me a little bit about the business side of it uh, with, with what you are doing. You know, I mean, you kind of touched on a little bit as far as retainer based thing, but you know, that's a little bit of a new thing. I think a lot of people nowadays with the shutdowns and not having that, um, you know, people are probably a little bit more hesitant uh, to, to just venture off and just go get a bunch of tests and things like that. So, uh, the telehealth is really big, uh, having that one doctor that you can call and get your prescriptions if you need one, or if you have a question. So tell everybody a little bit about the business side of it. How does that work? How have things changed, uh, since pre COVID and after COVID or during COVID? To be honest, for us, it hasn't changed, um, very much, um, from a business perspective because we generate our, re our revenue based on that membership fee. I think it's changed a lot um, for traditional medical practice because telehealth initially, I probably was not reimbursed initially, and eventually, or um, it's starting to be reimbursed now at a greater rate um, compared to what it was. So that's one major change that's occurred. I mean, uh, a lot of my patients who are seeing specialists now are doing so on telehealth platforms, and before that would not have been reimbursed at a very good rate, and I think that that's improving. Um, from a business perspective, I'm trying to think of, of other changes to our individual practice. Um, we did a lot of telehealth before. Um, mm -hmm. We do a lot of doctoring over the phone. A lot of the stuff can be done without patients coming into the clinic. We've been trying to keep patients out of the clinic, especially when they're ill, just because you don't want COVID walking through the doors of your clinic. You want your clinic kind of seen as a uh, a safe zone or an area where um, you know, an area of safety. Mm -hmm. um, what else did you kind of mean talking about the business model? So I guess not necessarily the business model, but just um, the business of it, uh, why you decided to go this route as opposed to the traditional route, of, you know, working in a hospital. Uh, what are what are the, you know, the differences doing it this way for you as opposed to working in a hospital in the world today, I guess? I think it's always good to work for yourself um, or to be part of a, a small company where you have a say in what happens, um, especially having worked for a hospital um, and been in a private practice previously. Um, you know, I only know how to doctor one way. And so much of my decision to go into concierge medicine was not necessarily based off um, salary or monetary issues or the business model. It was more just that, you know, Good doctoring occurs when you can spend a lot of time with patients. You can be comprehensive. You can kind of champion their issues and develop long, uh, develop patient relationships that last uh, for a lifetime, really. Right. Um, and in the previous model, in the traditional model, I was becoming, I was still performing at the level that I would hope and still providing a very good product for my patients, but it was taking a tremendous personal toll on me, uh, both psych uh, psychologically and physically. Yeah. Um, and it just didn't seem sustainable. You know, they talk about physician burnout, um, which is a huge topic amongst physicians. I don't know how much the lay public hears about physician burnout, um, but that's a real entity that's out there. And I felt like I was on the verge of getting burnout. Tell us a little bit more about the physician burnout. Um, that's an interesting topic for the lay people to probably hear. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the rate of depression and suicide in physicians is significantly increased. Um, and part of that, uh, burnout is, is a term where physicians almost lose their empathy and their ability to, to, to care for patients um, to the degree that they had it when they first started out in training. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of becoming, it's like becoming emotionally dull to what you're doing. Um, feeling like there's not a way out. Um, you know, a lot of physicians' salaries are coming down at a time where they're working harder and harder, and that gets demoralizing um, and difficult to um, stomach when you're a physician. So it really is kind of a demoralization of, of the spirit to practice medicine is what they mean by physician burnout. Um, and then certainly physician burnout leads to depression and, and other um, mental health issues. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you have somebody that... Uh you go to, to, to care for you, you expect that they're in the right frame of mind. You, you just assume that I feel. And, uh, I, I'm, I would imagine it's really easy to, I guess people just take that for granted. You know, it's really easy to overlook, Hey, this is a human that I'm speaking with too. It's not just a robot that's a, you know, a medicine robot. Um, so that's a good segue into kind of like, the style of medicine that you practice. Cause when you were talking about, um, what really gets you going, it's that paternal type of, you know, uh, treatment that you give to people, um, the bedside manner, uh, the, the, the closeness, you know, kind of having a connection with your patients, uh, to walk them through to a solution that, uh, you know, overall will, will serve them best. Um, tell us a little bit about your particular style. So I think I'm relatively laid back, but I also think I, as you said, I'm very paternalistic over my patients. I really want to champion their issues and own their problems. Um, When you talk about um, increasing subspecialization in medicine, there's a lack of ownership over the patient. Um, So when the patient comes in and they have a problem, that's my problem. It doesn't matter if it's under my purview or not. I mean, as a primary care doctor, it's always under my purview, but I'm going to help them seek out whatever treatment is necessary or whatever specialist they need to see. The other thing is, um, you know, it was it was really bothering me when I was so busy that patients would call and try and get seen for an acute issue and I wouldn't be able to see them because you can only add on so many patients in the day. Um, And it really bothered me that the reason that you have a long term relationship with your physician is so that when something goes wrong, you've got your physician who you've you've vetted and you've picked for for a particular reason to see. Um, And I was really failing my patients in that. And that was taking its toll psychologically on me wanting to be there for my patients when they're ill or when they're admitted to the hospital. That's another kind of um, uh, area where we're not doing the best job in medicine of continuity of care. When patients are admitted to the hospital, now they're taken care of by hospitalists and their primary care doctor isn't often in the loop in terms of what's going on. And this can be for pretty significant life-changing things that occur mm-hmm. with you know, big questions that patients have and they need um, help from someone they know to try and navigate the, the healthcare system. So um, when we talk about practice style, I, I like to be paternalistic. I like to own my patients. I like to be there for my patients. Um, I also like to treat all my patients as if they're family members. I think that goes without saying, um, but patients will always ask, you know, you referred me to this general surgeon, who would you send your mother to? And my response is always, I'm treating you as if you were my mother. Uh, So it's kind of, I have a very hands-on approach. Um, I I like to think I have good relationships with my patients. I know my patient's medical history. I don't have to look through their chart before I give them a call. Mm -hmm. I kind of know what makes them tick. I know, you know, that they have two children, what their names are. Those are the things that you kind of take a lot of satisfaction in your job um, with. 
um, just kind of intimately knowing your patients. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so much of the healthcare in, in my, um, experience is just very clinical and, you know, it's not, there's no personal real connection. Uh, you're in, you're out, you might see the doctor for a minute or two, ask you a couple of questions, but you're mainly dealing with a nurse. Um, and, uh, and, and that just seems like we could, we could do better. Uh, but at the same time, I know, I mean, it's, it's a hard job. And like you said, a lot of these doctors are probably overworked and underpaid for a lot of things. Um, especially the ones in the ER and, you know, uh, um, in, in clinics and things like that. So, um, it's, a it's an interesting world, especially in the world today with everything going on. Now, I've been waiting to ask you about this, but I wanted to get a little bit into the current events, what's happening, what your experiences are uh, dealing with people. Um, one of the things that I always ask people when I talk to them is, how many people do you personally know that have gotten sick with COVID? So I know four, um, so all of which were patients. I have yet to have a, um, uh, an acquaintance that I know outside of medicine that's had the, the virus. We had one patient in our practice who was very gravely ill and was in the intensive care unit, but pulled through, um, did well. Uh, the other three patients that I know, just within my smaller practice amongst the, the larger Harper Health practice, um, I was able to treat at home. Um, they had high fevers. They had lots of body aches. It definitely knocked them off their feet, but they weren't um, sick enough that they needed to present to the hospital, thank God. Mm -hmm. But I think to your question, I mean, it seems as if the virus is out there, but a lot of people don't encounter it. So it almost seems like it's, it's not real, right. but there are, it is out there. And it, it, you know, unfortunately it's altered the way that we live for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's kind of that, that thing, you know, you, you don't really know how bad it could be if it never really gets that bad. Right. right. So, right. so that's always a problem, you know, with, with people's perception, it could be the worst virus in the whole world, but if you don't, if you don't ever see it or know anybody that's, that's, that's had it, 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 it can't be real, you know, to people, right. you know, mentally. So it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's, that's why I wanted to speak with you because you deal with people, you're in the, uh, the profession, uh, treating people. So what you're saying is, um, uh, you've had four people uh, that actually tested positive. How did you come? How did that work out? Did, did they come in with symptoms? Did they just get a test and not have sh symptoms without going into specifics? But they came in with symptoms and nowadays we're able to do the drive-through testing. So we can order drive-through testing that can be done at Northwestern. Some of the drive-through testing we were doing out at our Hinsdale office, we were literally walking down to the car and swabbing patients. Mm -hmm. Um, most of my patients were positive later on in the outbreak when testing was more widespread and we were able to, to, secure a diagnosis for them. I should say I hear about a lot of COVID um, from my patients. You get a lot of six degrees of separation. I was with somebody last weekend and they were with somebody else and that person had COVID. So now should I get swabbed? Um, it's, it's out there. I mean, there's lots of questions that are coming from people that have come into contact with it. Um, you know, and if it's hard because if you've got a small little pod um, that hasn't been exposed to it, it seems like it's not really out there. Right. Right. And um, now, have you been, for the most part, I guess, just the anecdotal things, you know, the people telling you this and that through their experience, has, has it been, have you heard of many severe cases? Or has it just been a positive where they just don't, they really just don't feel good, but it's not life threatening? 
No, I've heard of a lot of severe cases. I mean, the intensive care unit at Northwestern was not at capacity. It was close to capacity. The hospital did a very good job in their surge capacity of expanding their ICUs. But there were a lot of patients um, who the, the intensivists were describing were gravely ill mm. with um, COVID. And this is definitely not the flu. This is worse than the flu. Um, which is a point that they continued to make um, when I would talk to them, just in terms of the patients that they were seeing. And how were they coping with it? Was it is it something that you were they noticeably disturbed by it, or because there's so much uncertainty? I would imagine if they're in contact with it, they kind of are worried for themselves a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think it was hard, especially early on, because we just didn't know very much about managing it. Um, we know a little bit more about managing it now than we did. Um, but I think it's hard when you see somebody that that's very, very ill with something that you're not very, um, educated in, yeah. um, they didn't necessarily express as much to me, but I think kind of on a granular level that, um, seeing it in the, in the flesh must've been a little bit of a, a jarring episode for them. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, whenever you come into contact with something new, especially, I mean, I don't know about you, but when this first kind of broke out, we were getting the news and the reports. I think I, I definitely thought it was going to be much worse, faster. You know, I thought it was going to be a catastrophic event the way that they were, you know, um, making it out to be. What were how did you deal with it when it first came out? You know, when, when the when the news broke, what were your thoughts on it um, in the beginning as opposed to how how it is now? I think it's difficult as a physician when you get a lot. I mean, I get a lot of my information on COVID from the media. Right. Um, so it's difficult because sometimes patients seem like they're more educated about COVID than you are. And I don't think they're actually more educated about it, but they may have heard about treatment X or treatment Y that maybe I didn't hear of that was obscure on the CNN website. And as a doctor, it feels a little bit invalidating when your patient brings up a potential treatment for something, despite the fact that it hasn't been validated in a large population or it hasn't been in peer reviewed medical, medical, medical literature. But it feels a little bit invalidating to not necessarily know the exact thing that they're talking about right. because the evidence is coming out so quickly or not the evidence, the 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 research or the, the thoughts about COVID is coming out so quickly that it's hard to stay on top of everything. I think now looking back on it, um, you know, I have a, a better sense of of the clinical course of COVID um, than I did before. Mm -hmm. um, and it definitely feels more real now than it, it did early on before I had any patients that had COVID. Mm, yeah, um, I, I agree. I think that I think that uh, whenever you're dealing with the unknown, it's it's much more scary. Uh, but when you, you know, when you when you kind of get a feel when you you know you you feel like you have, we've gotten texting, you know, kind of worked out. Um, overall, we know that the deaths are much lower than we originally thought they were going to be, which is great. Um, and what I hear is that the, uh, you know, it's very contagious and, you know, uh, a lot of people probably have it, don't even know they have it. Um, so do you feel better? Do you think that we're in a, we're getting in a better place or do you feel like we're maybe getting complacent and what do you, what are your thoughts? What are your opinions? I feel like, I feel like the latter, I feel like we're getting complacent and I think there might be a second wave. I, I worry about the fall with influenza season coming, um, that there's going to be COVID and influenza and we're all going to be more indoors and closer proximity than we've been able to be throughout the summer where we can kind of meet in outdoor events, um, in the environment where it's, it's, 
harder to transmit the virus. So mm -hmm. I, I tend to be with the latter that I worry about uh, uh, people be becoming more complacent and there, there, there being a second wave coming in the fall. And I, I think it's, it's hard because you think about how this is going to ultimately end up, um, you know, when we eventually get a vaccine, I don't see a large number of people being vaccinated until at least early 2021. So I think it's it's here with us to be our reality for the for the time being and probably for the next year or two, um, because even when the vaccine comes out, not everyone might choose to get it and it may not provide 100 percent protection. Right. Yeah, that's a it's a cultural thing, you know, in the United States that we are uh, hesitant to really trust authority for the most part, or at least blindly. Um so, yeah, I mean, the, the vaccine thing is kind of a, a, a touchy thing. I, I mean, I, I can understand both sides of the argument, you know, um, but knowing that there's going to be a huge pushback uh, against the, that, you know, taking it, accepting it or adopting it early. Does it seem like maybe it almost is a guarantee that it won't be as effective or what do you think? I mean. I, I hope not. I mean, I hope it's going to be the minority of people who are going to be willing to get this vaccine. But to your point, I mean, if you don't have someone in your pod or a close acquaintance that's had COVID, you may not believe that it's really out there. And to your point, we may have done a good job of, of flattening the curve and it might, might have been much, 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 much worse had we not done that. Right. Um, so I think it, it's difficult, especially in the United States. People are going to want to keep their autonomy and, and do what they want to do. I think to digress a little bit and talk about patients that were asymptomatic with COVID, I mean, I've heard multiple stories from the emergency room where somebody's in a car accident and they've got shoulder pain and they end up getting a chest x-ray and they've got florid COVID pneumonia mm. um, without any symptoms. Um, or patients that are getting chest x-rays for other reasons and they've got COVID pneumonia, they don't have fever, they don't have any other symptoms. So it's out there um, and patients have it and are infectious and not having any symptoms from it. Yeah. Um, it still looks like the seroprevalence rates when they look at it are still in the single digits. And really to get to herd immunity, we need somewhere around 50 to 60 percent. So we're still a long way from where we need to be. Um, I think testing has gotten better. Our testing capacity has gotten better, but we still need more testing, especially in the fall, um, trying to differentiate between what's influenza, what's respiratory syncytial virus, what's COVID. Um, I think it's going to be a challenge. Now, see, the thing about testing, so this is a question that I kind of had, and I think a lot of people are, are wondering about this too. We hear about um, all the different types of tests. You know, there's the rapid test, there's the antibody test, there's all these different tests. Um, what are, what are, what is the standard now? Like if you go into your doctor or say, if you come in uh, to see you and you want to test, could I uh, come into your office or have you come to me or however it's going to work and request a test and get the results when? How does that work? So it depends. Um, it depends if you're symptomatic. If you're symptomatic, I'm not going to have you walk into the office at all, okay. right? Because, because you're potentially infectious. I might do drive-up testing with you or send you to Northwestern. Um, so there's molecular testing, which is actually testing for the, the um, genetic code of the virus. Um, and that is very sensitive and very specific. Um, that's what's done in Northwestern. That's what's done through LabCorp, which is the vendor that we use. 
the turnaround time at Northwestern recently has been very, very good, one to two days um, to get a result. And through LabCorp, there were periods of time where I was taking five to six days, but we're kind of back to a two to three day waiting window to get our results back from our private vendor. And you talk about other tests. So the rapid test is not nearly as sensitive, meaning it, it, it's going to miss certain cases. It's going to miss a large number of cases that are out there, but it's better than not having anything because when it is positive, it tends to be correct. Okay. Um, the other test that you, people refer to is the antibody test. So that's looking for signs that you had the illness, um, you know, later on in the course of illness, or once you clear the illness, it's looking for, um, antibodies against the virus indicating that you were exposed. Mm -hmm. And then amongst those antibody tests there right now, there's only, um, binding <laughs> antibody assays. I believe, um, we don't know if the antibodies that we're assaying right now are neutralizing antibodies, which prevent infection. Yeah, there's still a lot of uncertainty, but I know a lot of people are working on it. Everybody's everybody in the world is kind of thinking about these things right now. So um, I'm confident we'll get it sorted out one way or another. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, herd immunity? I don't I don't think we're going to get to herd immunity for a long period of time without a vaccine. Um, and um, I, my hope is that when a vaccine <clears throat> is available, it'll be. Um, used by people that are capable of getting it. Right. Yeah, I guess I, I don't have any other thoughts about herd immunity. Um, yeah. Other than that, it's happening slowly. I mean, when I when you look at the seroprevalence rates, like I said, they're in the single digits and they need to be in the 60% range for us to, to, to establish herd immunity. So I kind of think if we if we let it be um, without intervening with a vaccine, it's going to be quite some time before we get there. Now, the hospital system itself, uh, you, you kind of touched on a little bit as far as the, um, you know, the, the surge control, making sure that there's uh, enough, you know, c available capacity. How has that been managed? Uh, are we obviously we live in, in, a, in a large uh, area, so we have a lot more capacity, but we also have a lot more people. What um, what does that look like? Do you think we're prepared for something if it were to happen in the fall? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think we are. I mean, I know Northwestern in particular was bracing for the worst and they still, even at their, even at their peak census had beds available. Um, so I think the city of Chicago has done a good job of, of allocating what beds we have available, the ICU beds versus the, the medicine beds. Hmm. Um, you know, our surge capacity in Chicago seems to be pretty good. I think it, you never know what the future is going to bring, but I think we're well positioned to handle um, an increased amount of cases should they occur. Okay. Yeah. And we cross our fingers. Obviously we, we hope for the best, uh, but prepare for the worst. So that's good. So I wanted to get into preventative measures, uh, ways to set yourself up for the best case. Uh, if you do get it, you know, to, to put yourself in a position where you can fight it off. What are some of the things that you can do at home, what are some of the uh, maybe vitamins or something that you can take supplements that might, uh, you know, help uh, strengthen your immune system? What would you uh, say would be a good thing to maybe look into? So there's not a lot of evidence on, on uh, treatments that you can do to reduce your chance of getting COVID. But something that we anecdotally tell our patients is to take vitamin C or take vitamin D on a regular basis. Um, I think it's overall healthy living. Um, you know, when you're stressed and you're run down and you're not taking care of yourself, that's when you're more susceptible to getting infection. Um, so kind of doing daily maintenance just for mind and body, I think is important. And then, you know, the, the part that's under your control, which is who you expose yourself to, um, 
is huge in terms of what your risk is going to be to contracting COVID, right? So if you're good about wearing masks and staying outside of a six foot radius of other people, your risk is going to be relatively low. Um, if you're in someone's company within six feet without a mask for more than 15 minutes, that's a pretty significant risk um, that that person might have COVID and that you could potentially catch it. So there's a lot of things that are under um, a, a patient's control um, in order to kind of minimize their risk of, of catching the virus. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, with, it goes without saying, if you're if you're you know, living a healthier lifestyle, you're probably in a better situation to fight off any illness that you have. So, you know, maybe uh, drinking a little too much and, you know, smoking uh, are things to maybe consider quitting, I would imagine. Um, how do you feel about the fact that, you know, from from what you hear, alcoholism and, you know, the, you know, kind of the depression setting in of being maybe laid off or at home for an extended period of time, how has that been playing into things? Um, what are your thoughts on on that? Uh, kind of There's thing? been a lot of anxiety. Uh, people are really afraid um, of catching this disease, especially the seniors or the over 65 population. I mean, there are people that are just barricading themselves in their apartment or their condo and not coming out. So there's a lot of anxiety that's been out there um, associated with that. I've dealt personally less with depression. Um, associated with the, the um, pandemic. Um, I think as we get into the winter months, that's gonna be more of an issue when it's dark outside all the time, you're not leaving your apartment, you're not doing the, you can't see friends and neighbors and family. I think it's gonna become a much larger piece of the puzzle that we're gonna have to tackle um, as we get into the winter months. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. I, I think that um, we, we've overall, I guess, let me get your opinion. Overall, how do you think we've handled it as a society? Um, you think good, bad? What do you think? Well, I think in the United States, we could have handled it a lot better. Um, I think that without getting into politics, I think if yeah. we had a unified um, effort coming from the federal level in terms of how to handle this, um, we'd be in a much better situation than we are. Um, you know, I think we've done it. We did a good job of flattening the curve in Chicago and preventing, you know, the hospitals from becoming overrun. So um, we have done good things in the pandemic, but I think that it could have been handled much better um, than it has been. I think when you look at like New Zealand, who really has watched who they've allowed in and had a very strict lockdown, I mean, they had no cases for a period of time and they're able to be in large arenas watching sporting events. Mm. Um, you know, that's something that maybe would have been on the table for the United States had a, we had a better, um, more unified federal guidance when this happened and, and much earlier than it happened. Um, so it's hard to kind of know how we're doing on that metric. Because um, as you said before, maybe it could be a lot worse. Maybe we're doing really well. Yeah, right. We don't. Have, but if, right. Yeah. It's uh, that's that's the thing. You know, I mean, it's there's no way to really tell. There's no there's no, uh, you know, reference point. Um but, well, I mean, you could use Italy as a reference point, right? True. I mean, they yeah. were they were literally choosing, you know, doctors were having to make life and death decisions about who they were going to resuscitate and treat. Um, and it never got to that point in the United States. So yeah. from that perspective, it's a huge win for us. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, we just saw, I mean, we saw in New York, uh, they had uh, terrible news uh, coming out of New York. Uh, you know, a lot of people passed away. Uh, it's... Um, 
it's a crazy time, but you know, one of the things that's uh, being suggested that we that we probably, I, and I want you to get your opinion on this is you know really focusing on protecting the elderly and the most susceptible. Um, you know, what do you think? Uh, if, you know, for an average person, you know, if you have uh, grandparents or you know older friends or things like that, what are some of the steps that you can take to kind of, um, you know. Uh, isolate those people in a healthy way or what are the, some of the things that you could do yourself to, you know, maybe protect uh, the people around you? Well, I think it's, it's not exposing yourself to them or not exposing them to you. I think it's wearing a mask, staying outside of six feet from those individuals. I mean, it's easy now because the weather's nice and you can still see grandma or grandpa or mom or dad or, you know, aunt or uncle outside right. where the risk is much lower. Um, I think, um, you're going to have to take a self-assessment of how good of a job you're doing um, within your pod of not exposing yourself and, and and thinking whether or not you're high or low risk. And then based on that, making a decision as to whether or not to enter the house, right? Wearing a mask. I think you should be masked. Um, they should be masked. You should avoid coming within six feet of them. Um, those are kind of, they're hard decisions because they're so personalized. Each and every one of them is. Mm -hmm. That's one of the benefits of, of concierge medicine is those are questions that we get um, that we can help patients answer. Um, it's as simple as just shooting us a text of saying, hey, you know, I was thinking about seeing grandma this weekend. What are your thoughts on what the risk of transmission is? And we can kind of tackle that with them based upon the individual circumstances because it is such an individualized occurrence when it does happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to I wanted to move on to that a little bit, you know, to get, you know, really, really hit home. Uh, what it is that you do and the difference between uh, taking that risk potentially to go to the hospital and, you know, to do those things. So tell me about how you actually operate. You have people, you have an office that people can come to, but will you also go out to the patient and see them on location? Tell me about how it works. So, yeah, I mean, we, we basically do whatever we need to do to take care of the patient. So a lot of my senior citizens I've made house calls for. Mm -hmm. um, I've made house calls just to draw their blood if they needed blood drawn for another reason, um, just so they didn't have to go out of their apartment and go to the hospital and get it drawn. We have brought a lot of patients into the clinic to do things, um, you know, in, in lieu of them seeing specialists. Um, so I've injected knees, I've injected shoulders. Hmm. We've brought patients into the clinic because we're a very low volume clinic and the risk is very low of contracting COVID in and around our clinic, as opposed to if we were based out of the hospital where there's maybe more chance of coming into contact with it. Um, but it's, it's spanned the gamut of, you know, telehealth, texting, um, making house calls with patients. Um, it's really whatever the patients need. And then when they're hospitalized, trying to see them in the hospital, which initially was problematic with the pandemic, not wanting to use PPE um, for social visits and things of that nature. Yeah. And uh, one of the main reasons kind of I led into this with how what we can do to protect older people or people at a higher risk is, you know, the fact that you will do house calls, you can cut out that whole risk factor uh, and the hesitation specifically for people that maybe do need care for other things. Uh, you know, maybe they're neglecting their, you know, checkups or, 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 or just uh, screenings that they would need. Um, you offer solutions for people uh, to, to kind of not have to worry uh, about going in and sitting in a waiting room or whatever. Can you tell people about some of the things that you would suggest that they call uh, if they're at a higher risk, you would suggest that they contact you and kind of the benefits of 
doing it your way as opposed to the old school way? Yeah, I think that they there's a lot to be said for the um, the state of mind that they know that you're there for them. Um, and should they become ill, you're there to kind of guide them um, in terms of what to look for at home, um, when they should come into the hospital, if they need to come into the hospital, and that you're there for them when they're in the hospital helping to coordinate their care. Um, I, I think it, that goes with any illness. It doesn't have to necessarily be COVID. It seems to me that in the, you know, the world that we're in today, uh, we know that there's a group of people that are at a higher risk. And um, I would imagine if I was one of those people and I was at a higher risk, I wouldn't want to be going to get a checkup. I wouldn't want to be going to, you know, it, you know, whatever it is, any, any procedure or something that I could put off, I would put off. We can help determine, you know, for each individual patient what is appropriate to put off and what's not appropriate to put off. Um, I think patients, unfortunately, there's less heart attacks coming into the emergency room, less strokes. And I think a lot of that is because patients are at home so concerned about catching COVID that they're not coming in for the cardinal warning signs of, of certain other health conditions. So right. I think being able to use this as a sounding board for whether or not they need to seek uh, uh, additional care for some of their complaints is a very valuable um, aspect of, of the concierge care that we provide. Absolutely. Yeah, that was nicely put. Um, it's, it, it is important. I mean, it's not something you think about. Whenever you think about concierge, you always think of specialized, uh, tailored, personal, you know, direct to the source. Um, you know, so tell me a little bit about the process of becoming one of your patients. What is the intake like? Is there a process or a form or application approval process? How does it work? So it starts with a, a phone call with the physician um, just to see if we're aligned. What we used to do was do meet and greets in the office. But in the age of COVID, we do that over teleconference or we do it over the phone to, to try and figure out if someone's a good fit. Um, and I think patients should be aware that they're interviewing us, but we're very much interviewing them as well because we want to make sure that their expectations align with kind of what our expectations are for good care. Mm -hmm. um, and once that visit has occurred, then um, there's an onboarding process where they sign a contract. We talk about what the, the concierge fee is for the, for the year on an annual basis. And we kind of get them plugged in with the electronic health record, with our communications devices. We have HIPAA secure, encrypted um, ways to text our patients and receive texts back. Um, to kind of get them onboarded to all the individual technologies that we've got within our office. And then it's bringing them in or, or doing a, uh, a tele or a, a video health uh, conference just to, to take a history and get to know them. Also to um, gather the medical records just so we've got a good background history on our patients as they come in and, and schedule a physical. We're still doing physicals. Um, and we put a lot of um, value in our annual physical as a as kind of the the starting block for what we want to be promotion of of good health, not just reacting to disease. Yeah, well, that's that's something that I wanted to also talk about. Um, you know, having having your health taken care of and not just going to the doctor when it's catastrophic and you you know on death's doorstep. Um, it's 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 a relationship that you should have in place. You should have a doctor that you trust, that you're in communication with semi-regularly or whatever, doing what you have to do. Um, and that's kind of what you uh, built your whole thing about. You know, I mean, that, that's really the core of what you do. It's that, um, that 
you know, it's a different type of medicine. It's that personal care where I can call you, I can text you and I can get an answer from you direct. Is that about right? Yeah, that's correct. And and I think the other thing that I that I said before is, you know, we want to get away from reacting to disease and we want to get in the, the habit of promoting wellness. Yeah. Right. So that can be me checking in every three months just to make sure that if I recommended you exercise a little bit more or tweak your diet in a certain way, that can just be a, a follow up phone call for me trying to hold you accountable. So part of it is the science of behavior change, understanding that, knowing that maybe we need to be in a certain patient's ear a little bit more mm -hmm. um, to get them to to push them in the right direction. Um, you know, for some of the, the chronic health conditions that they have, I think some of us have a, a different view on them altogether. Like type two diabetes is not something that should be treated. It should be cured because mm. it's a curable disease. Mm. Um, I think when, when you're, you know, when you've got 25 patients on your schedule and you've only got five minutes to spend with somebody, it's really easy to write another medication that's going to perpetuate the disease process. It's much more difficult to spend 30 to 45 to 60 minutes with the patient really telling them this is a curable disease. You don't have to suffer from this any longer if you do X, Y, and Z. Hmm. So it's very powerful having the time to be able to do that with our patients um, and really come at it from a wellness approach in addition to managing chronic health conditions. Yeah. One of the things that we uh, touched on when we had our conversation last week was the trust factor. Um, the, the fact that since those interactions are so short and it's with a different person every time, most of the time, um, you don't have that eye to eye, you know, kind of personal trust, uh, in the person that's given you the, you know, recommendations. Um, that's so important, you know, with, with, with something as important as your health, you would think that the system would be based on that personal touch approach. Why is it not? I, I understand the specialist thing, that angle, but what can we do to change this? Do you think that concierge medicine and the personal care type of thing is more of the future or what do you think? I do think it's more of the future. I think the hard part is that concierge is going to eliminate certain, um, by virtue of the fact that there's a retainer fee, you're going to eliminate certain a certain portion of the population that isn't right. ability, isn't able to pay for it, um, and I think that's a difficult um, avenue to think about um, in terms of what the what the future is going to look like in terms of trying to get more personalized care for individuals. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately it comes down to what reimbursement is doing. I think if reimbursement starts, um, you know, making it advantageous to spend time with patients, I think you'll see more personalized care out there. Um, we can talk about the future of healthcare. I think one of the things that you and I had talked about last week was maybe there will be universal healthcare. I would argue that it would be a good thing that we get universal healthcare, but in a, in a universal healthcare system, I also think in the United States, we should offer more. There should be a secondary insurance market or a concierge market. I think you're going to see a niche for concierge type services, um, as an add on to what's considered basic care. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the things when when we ponder these things you know about how how you can just the logistics behind offering healthcare to everyone across the board for free or whatever universal out of taxes or whatever it is there's there's just so much waste in the government a lot of times there's so much uh, you know there's so many moving pieces that it's like how can you trust that they all fall into place and it works every time you know i don't think that's possible but one of the things that was really interesting when we were talking, we were talking about the fact that 
if you have that personal care and you have that person that kind of has that overall perspective of each individual patient's case, you're not necessarily, number one, you'll be able to prevent a lot of things before it happens because you'll have that trust factor and people will actually listen to you. So that'll yeah. cut down the amount of need, you know, um, people will overall, I would imagine, be more healthy. Um, but unfortunately, what happens is that takes a lot of money away from the drug companies and the, and the uh, insurance companies. And right. if we want to actually solve these problems and provide health care, it's not about whether it comes out of our taxes or how it's going to get paid for. It's where does that money go? You know, and and why does it have to be so much? You know, right. Uh, we we don't insure all of our, our citizens and yet we're spending more per capita than any other country. So. Right. Yeah. And 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 the other the other aspect of it that I hear from uh, physicians, and I think we talked about this, too, is the fact that, you know, if you're going to take that extra time to give that bedside manner, you need to be uh, compensated for it as well. You can't, you know, expect, you know, you go to school, you you can't be forced to provide more service to everyone at a lower cost. That is not right. So, you know, there has to be some sort of reworking of this whole kind of drug pricing system, insurance system, because I think that's the problem. A, a lot of it, or part of it. You know, I mean, there's so many pieces to this, but um, it's, uh, I think it really starts with just having a, a trustworthy physician that actually, you know, understands you, uh, your individual case. I think that'll solve a lot of things. Do you, well, you... I think to your point, I think it cuts down on waste. It cuts down on repeating tests. I right. think when you have multiple different cooks in the kitchen, a lot of tests get repeated, sometimes at different facilities because we don't have a unified medical record or one standardized medical record. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody shows up in the emergency room at Northwestern, but was at the emergency room at University of Chicago two weeks ago may not we may not have the information of what happened at that visit and that may really uh, alter what we order for this admission or right. for this patient when they're in the emergency room this time um, so I think um, cutting down on on the repeating tests um, is certainly one area where we can limit the the kind of waste um, healthcare dollars that are kind of going by the wayside. Now, one thing that you, you brought up just at, for your individual um, uh, uh, business, it, you are part of the Northwestern uh, system. So what was it exactly that you said that where you actually have access to records if people are within the network of some sort? Can you explain right. that a little bit? So I'm at staff. I'm on staff at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. I'm not. Um, I do not work for Northwestern okay. Memorial Hospital, but that allows me to have access to their medical record, um, and so I can directly kind of plug in and look and see what's been done in in any Northwestern um, based care. Um, it also allows me to see. Uh, it's a system called Epic, and it also allows me to see um, care that's being delivered at other institutions that have Epic. So it is allowing me to kind of plug into the mainframe and get a lot of the data that I need to get um, for patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, with anything, obviously there's two sides of everything. Uh, you know, whenever you talk about collection of data and sharing of data, you have privacy concerns. Um, you know, HIPAA is, is supposed to be there to protect patients. Can you tell us a little bit about what that does? I know it's a big, complicated thing, but just tell us a little bit about how that how those rules work and, you know, how your how secure is your information if it's being shared? Well, you, you have to sign a HIPAA form to uh, download any information um, from a different institution um, using Epic, um, but it, it makes it very difficult. I mean, we want to make sure that we're 
keeping people's health information and personal information secure. Um, and I think that's one of the barriers to us having a unified medical record is because of um, privacy those concerns. privacy concerns. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there are some things that you you kind of need. I mean, if you're a doctor and you're going to be providing care and you're going to be ordering tests and all this stuff, all this waste, there should be some sort of information you should have access to just at the very least for the patient's protection and for yours. If you're going to be prescribing things, you need to have all the information. Um, otherwise, you could get sued or you could kill somebody or hurt them badly. So it just makes a lot of sense that there should be a lot of changes Um We've been talking about this for so long, uh, you know, about how we're going to overhaul the healthcare system and all these different things. What do we see happening? Do we see changes on the horizon? Do you think that it's something we can ever accomplish or, or are we just uh, spinning our gears? Um, I think that's a difficult one. It took so much to get the Affordable Care Act passed. Um, I think we'll have to see what happens in um, November. Um, I think if the Democrats get a hold of the presidency and the Senate and the House, I think you might see some legislation put through in terms of universal health care. Um, but I think um, it, it's a difficult nut to crack. Um, it's something you're right that we've talked about for a long period of time and everyone agrees about, but no one agrees on the solution. Right. Um, yeah, it's uh, well, we all have different perspectives, and that's why I wanted to hear yours. I mean, you're in it. You do it. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's important work. You know I mean? We need doctors that care. We need doctors that provide, you know, real service face to face type of stuff where I know who you are. I can call you if I have a problem. Um, so tell everybody how, how to contact you. Um, let everybody know exactly, uh, you know, what you have to offer. And, um, you know, I, I, I definitely, uh, uh enjoy our conversation. Yeah, I very much appreciate the opportunity to come on your show and talk. Um, the best thing to do is to go to our website, www.harper-health.com, um, and you can um, call us or email us. Um, you can put in your information, um, learn more about our practice. You can even download, I believe, a sample contract to get more information. Um, and we're happy to hop on the phone with uh, anyone that wants to be a prospective patient just to touch base and see if our uh, expectations align with uh, what you're looking for. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's an important thing. Uh, I know that you do care. You, you, you know, like you said, you were on the verge of burning out because you felt like you weren't uh, able to do as much as you wanted to do. So now that you have a little bit more control and you have your own thing, uh, I think that, uh, that, that's a, that's a win for everybody. So yeah, I think the work-life balance has been a lot better since I've made the change. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good to hear. How, how's everything else in life though? Are you, are you, are you okay? Is everything good or? Yeah, things are good. I mean, I have two small kids. They're six and eight. They're totally healthy. Um, you know, my wife's a pediatrician and her practice is doing okay. Things things are good. I mean, I think in the world of COVID, that's the disclaimer, but I think things are things are otherwise very good. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to leave on a, on a positive note. I think that there's a lot of learning, you know, that's going on right now. I think people are kind of, you know, even through all the negativity and all the things going on in the world, uh, I think that, uh, you know, we, we all kind of want the same thing. We want happiness and health and, you know, for our family to be, you know, good. And, and you know, we, people are generally good. So, you know, I, I, I definitely like to hear these stories, but I'm glad you're doing well. Uh, everybody, again, it's uh, harper-health.com. Dan, it's a real pleasure to have you on. I really, really appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll be talking again soon.